Again, my name is William. It's my privilege to serve as the pastor here of the Mission Cincinnati. And if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been journeying together through the season of Lent, specifically in a series called uh, A Beautiful Life, The Fruits of the Spirit for a Worried World. And so far, we've looked at several of the different fruits of the Holy Spirit that Paul lists out in the book of Galatians. And today we're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit of Peace, which seems wonderfully appropriate for what all of us probably need a little more of in this time. And so I'm going to say this morning three things about peace according to the scriptures. But before I do that, let's take a moment to bow our hearts together in prayer. Holy Spirit of the living God, we pray that you would come this morning and you would do what we are powerless to do apart from your help, that you would open the scriptures to us, that we might hear your living word that is full of truth, that is alive because it is embodied in a raised from the dead Jesus who God has revealed to us on the cross and through the empty grave. Would you speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus, the words that you know we need to hear that all of us may be empowered, set free, and transformed for mission in the earth. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing to say about peace in these verses is that in order to feel peace, you have to be at peace. I remember talking to my grandparents about what life during World War II was like. My grandfather was a navigator for a bomber, and my grandmother dropped out of college to support the war effort. If you lived in a coastal town, you had to turn off your house lights before nightfall so the enemy ships that may have been patrolling our waters wouldn't be able to know where land was. Young men were sent overseas to fight, and women upended their lives to work in munitions factories or other industrial sectors. The war was an all-inclusive effort that affected every aspect of life in America. It would not have been possible to have been alive then and not know or feel that you were living amidst a people at war. Some of this reality is also true for us today. The coronavirus has, in a few short weeks, affected every aspect of our lives in this country. Our socializing, our economics, our politics, and even our spiritual practices and how we gather together as the body of Christ. How strange it is to watch a TV show that was filmed just a few weeks ago with a scene where there are a bunch of people hanging out in a bar and to suddenly feel like you have a window into this totally foreign and different reality. News headlines have called our fight against this disease a war. And the measures that have been put in place are in many ways just as destabilizing as the measures experienced by Americans during World War II. It's harder to feel peace when you know you're at war, isn't it? As irrational as you know the thoughts may be, you can't shake the feeling that a bomb might drop at any moment or a loved one might be hospitalized. Feeling peace is easier when you actually are at peace. When your life is not being torn apart by many battles. The great story of universal history, and indeed the big story of the Bible, is that there is a spiritual war that has been raging since the beginning of time. A good God, the God revealed in Jesus, is at war with the powers of evil, sin, and death. 
And because humanity chose outside of God's will and sin, we are taken as captives into the heart of the evil enemy camp. And God's heart was rent by the strategic challenge that to fully destroy the enemy would mean destroying us too. Until Jesus volunteered to become a human and venture into the enemy camp too, to find us in our helpless imprisonment, to lay down his life, to win our freedom, to make it possible for us to escape the clutches of the enemy and return home to God again, and somehow miraculously to emerge beyond death itself, raised to life and fully victorious as well. It is precisely this spiritual reality that the Apostle Paul calls attention to in our Ephesians passage that Charles read. This is what he's talking about when he writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He's not just talking about people generally. Paul is talking about Gentiles who have come to Christ. Gentiles who before the time of Jesus were outsiders to the people and promises of God. In the Old Testament, only the Jews were God's chosen nation, but no more. Now, in and through Christ Jesus, God is up to something daring, something beautiful, and something new. God's heart, Paul tells us. Indeed, the work he has completed in the world through the death and resurrection of Jesus is to personally become humanity's peace. Peace between people and God through the forgiveness of sins on the cross. But also peace between people and each other. In Christ, God has taken Jews and Gentiles who were formerly hated racial enemies of one another and now has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier between them, the dividing wall of their hostility. Why has God done this? Paul tells us that God's purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility. In other words, God wanted to bring peace between people and God and peace between people and each other. He wanted to make it possible for anyone who has ever thought that they could never come home to him because they were too dirty, too broken, too unacceptable, or too unclean. He wanted to make it possible for those people to have a special place at his own dinner table in his own house. God wanted to make it possible for any of us who have been afraid of people who are different from us, people whose skin color doesn't look like ours, or who grew up with more money or less money, people who grew up with two parents or no parents, who have graduate degrees or only high school diplomas. God wanted to make it possible for all of us to find friendship with different people, to find healing, forgiveness, and transforming unity with each other in Christ. God wanted to make it possible for any of us who have ever thought that God could never love me because I can't stop doing this thing or I can never seem to do that thing. To be able to trust in the finished work of Christ. That if we put our faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord, that God could look at us now as spotless, washed by the blood of Jesus, visible to God now as we will be one day perfected in Christ. God wanted to make it possible for Jesus to be the lens through which he sees us, 
so that just as he would welcome Jesus into his presence and household, so he would welcome us the same way to rest and dine at the dinner table of God and experience peace with God and peace with each other. And the glorious good news that Paul wants us to hear and know to the depths of our being is that these desires from the heart of God aren't just pipe dreams. They're actually possible for us now because of what Jesus has done through his death and resurrection. We can actually experience these things today. Peace with God and peace with each other through faith in Jesus' finished work. Peace, according to God, isn't just a feeling. It's a reality Christ has won for us that he joyfully invites us to experience with him. To feel peace, you have to be at peace. And the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we are no longer captives in the enemy camp. We are at home sharing supper at the dinner table of the good and victorious God, seated with our big brother Jesus, who is himself both our peace with God and our peace with one another. The second thing to say is that in Christ, peace is always promised to us, but it may not always feel like we expect it to. In our second passage from Philippians, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The promises and the calls to action in these verses of Philippians are only possible because of the reality that our Ephesians passage declares. If Jesus has not won a victory over the powers, if he's not liberated us from the camp of the enemy, then it's not possible for us to rejoice in any of our circumstances, whether they're happy or sad. Because if Jesus has not rescued us from sin and death, then the ultimate destiny of our lives, no matter what happens to us along the way, is that we are doomed. But if Jesus has rescued us, as indeed Ephesians reminds us of, then we can rejoice in any and all circumstances, even adversity, sorrow, or great loss. Because if Jesus has won a victory over sin, evil, and death, and we have trusted in his finished work by faith, then the ultimate destiny of our lives is eternal life and complete peace and everlasting joy in the house of God we were made to be with. And so Jesus promises us that we can rejoice in any and all circumstances. We can turn the anxiousness we feel into prayers that we lift up to a God who loves us who does hear us, and who is close to us. And as we act in faithful response to what Christ has done for us, God promises that the peace of God, which is beyond all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds. God's peace is promised to us in Christ Jesus. But what exactly does God's peace look like? And how will it feel when we experience it? 
First, again, I want to remind us that God's peace is not primarily found in a feeling, but in the finished work of Christ. Most of us probably define peace as a feeling of emotional and physical relaxation. Like the feeling you have when work is done, the kids are finally in bed, and you can just chill. There are times when the peace of God feels relaxing. But the operation of God's peace in our lives is not primarily marked by a feeling, but rather by a trusting awareness of the gospel. In this way, the peace of God is less a feeling and more a knowing. The knowledge that if something happens to me, if I die or lose everything or suffer hardship, I don't have to worry about it because I'm on my way to be with Jesus. Well, you might ask, what about all the people in my life who are depending on me? All the organizations that need me? All of the things in my life that require my activity to function? I think Jesus would respond to these questions by reminding us of the gospel. You and me, we are not God. We are not created to be the source of security, hope, and salvation upon which others should build their lives or place their hope. Only Jesus can be that. Not only does he love us, he loves our loved ones even more than we do. He has more ability to make a difference in the eternal aspects of our work than we do. He can take care of the world if we leave it. And we will have peace to the extent that we know and trust in this loving, present, and attentive character of his heart. Trusting in a Jesus we believe and know is like this will free us to receive whatever comes our way with the knowledge that God will still provide for us, still lead us, and still protect us in and through it all. Second, I think that the peace of God when we, when we think about what it's like, it's important to remember that promises take continued work to experience. I think all of us would probably like God's peace to just fill our lives like a daily direct deposit into our emotional bank account or a Jesus-issued spiritual drug that some sort of angel brings down to us from heaven to inject in our bloodstream each morning. We'd love to get all the felt benefits of faith with ever, without ever having to lift a finger but that's not how God's promises work. When God promises something to us, he acts and we participate. God's promises to us are like marriage vows. In a wedding ceremony, a couple makes vows to each other, promises to care for one another and to love each other selflessly for as long as they both shall live. Now, any of us who have been married for longer than like five seconds know that these promises don't just happen. We have to work at them every day. But as we work at laying down self-interest and practice loving and serving our spouse, great and miraculous fruits of fidelity, joy, and love start to blossom in our relationship. And it's the same with the spiritual promises of God. Human beings are biologically wired for anxiety. All of us will feel worry in our lives from time to time, no matter how mature we are. But when we feel worry and anxiousness, do we turn to ourselves and try to control the situation, work harder, put the pressure on our shoulders to solve the crisis? Or do we turn the anxiety into prayer 
Let it lead us into God's presence, remembering that he is there right in the midst of our crisis. And he promises to hold us together and to move us forward. As we practice trusting Jesus through through prayer and cultivating awareness of his presence in the midst of our crisis moments, we will experience more and more of the fulfilled promises of God and the peace of Christ which passes all understanding. It won't happen passively. We'll have to participate and work at it over time. But God will meet us in the process and come through to fulfill his promise to be our peace. Third and finally, the peace of God is not the same as escapism. There is an idol we're tempted to run after in the moments when we're hard-pressed by anxiety and searching for peace. And that idol is escape. When we're freaking out or exhausted and just want to ditch all responsibility and go live in a cabin in the woods or lie forever on a chaise lounge under a palm tree on a Tahitian beach sipping a Corona. See what I did there? What we're longing for in those moments is escape. Escape is the idea that we can run away from our problems, that peace is found through disconnecting from the present reality that we don't like. It's important to say that there's a difference between rest, retreat, and Sabbath on the one hand, and escape on the other. Our bodies need rest. So do our souls. The gospel writers show us that Jesus would often get away to solitary places to pray, But Jesus' retreat and our rest and even our godly vacations are not intended to be us running away from reality. They are intended to be us taking a measured step back to breathe, recalibrate, and refocus so that we can return and press into reality with a clearer mind and a less tired heart. It's been said that anxiety is a future without God. Similarly, escape is the idol of rest somewhere outside of reality. And if you're outside of reality, then God won't be there. Because God is real, moving in real lives, moving in the here and now to restore, heal, and serve. God can absolutely be with you on a Tahitian beach. But he won't be there with you, supporting your efforts to ditch his calling because it felt too hard. He wants to be within you, girding up your heart, making you stronger through the Holy Spirit than you ever thought you could be on your own. Training your mind to believe that you don't need to numb your senses in order to experience peace. You just need to be fully awake to the reality that God is with you always even in the hard, painful, and stressful times. He's taking the responsibility for the world and for your destiny on his shoulders. And he's already written the end of the story. In Christ, you are headed for a good place, a real place where you'll be able to rest forever in and with him. Don't trade that reality for something temporary and fake. Lay down the idol of escape, repent of it, and look for peace. Look for the peace and presence of Jesus sneaking up on you as you press into his heart 
to meet you right here and right now. The third and final thing to say about these passages is that true peace will be ours when our lives are built fully and only on Jesus. In our Ephesians passage, Paul explains that we are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. The promises of God, like structural beams in a home or tall building, radiate outward from the most important part of the spiritual foundations of our lives. Jesus, the cornerstone, and the one great hope upon which God has designed our lives to be built, supported, and sustained. Jesus alone is strong enough to support us, to give our lives the direction and stability they need. Nothing else can do this work or be this hope. And yet, if you're like me, we are so good at building our lives on anything and everything but Jesus. We build our life on the economy and place our hope in the stock market. We build our life on other people and place our hope in our safety and theirs. We build our life on our self-will and desires and put our hope in our autonomy and our ability to do whatever we want, whenever we want. And this sort of life construction project works okay as long as the stock market keeps going up, as long as our job keeps paying the bills, as long as our loved ones are safe and our family is together, as long as I have mobility and working legs. But as soon as any of these other things that are not Jesus that we built our lives on stop working, our whole lives come apart. We are absolutely robbed of peace. When the stock market crashes and the economy that we trusted in to save us goes berserk, when our vision for a hopeful future that was built on the idea of having kids and we struggle with infertility or even have a miscarriage, when our idea of a great weekend was shopping and bar hopping and now in the words of Tony Stark, earth is closed today. If you've been robbed of peace by circumstances, it's okay. It's an opportunity to let God expose the false things that we've been trusting in to save us and bring us peace that we were never designed to rely on. The beautiful thing is that God loves you so much, he wants to be your foundation because he knows that he can come through for you and that he alone can do that. And he doesn't want you to waste your time or waste your energy or lose your hope and become mistrustful because you're trusting in something weaker than he is. He's inviting us today to let go of those false gods and the false peace that they offer so that we can grab hold of the true God revealed in Jesus, who alone is strong enough to build our lives on, and who alone can bring a sure and lasting peace. Friends, I think the question that God would invite us to ask of ourselves this morning is who or what are you trusting in to save you today, to bring you peace? Is it Jesus? Or is it someone or something else? 
If the answer's not Jesus this morning, again, that's okay. I think that's actually what God wants us to recognize, that we can do the heart work of repentance and say, Lord, I have put all my hope in the economy, and it is not working out for me. And I lay it at your feet. I give it back to you to say, do whatever you want with that. I'm going to hold on to you. Whatever that thing is, if it's something other than Jesus, Jesus invites us to lay it at his feet this morning so that we can receive him in its place. So Mission Cincinnati, build your life on the cornerstone of Christ. Let him be your peace. A peace strong enough and real enough to guard your heart in all circumstances and free you to rejoice in all times and places even in the midst of adversity. Amen.